tonight's scripture reading will be out of Psalm 68. Um, And then when you guys get there, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad, let them exalt before God, and let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is Yah, and exalt before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God causes the lonely to inhabit a home. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wasteland, the earth quaked. The heavens also dripped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You caused abundant rain to sprinkle down, O God. You established your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures inhabited it. You established it in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the word. The women who proclaim the good news are a great host. Kings of armies retreat. They retreat. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. If you men lie down among the sheepfolds, you all would be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty dispersed the kings there, it was snowing at Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has prized for his habitation? Surely Yahweh will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as at Sinai, in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have laid captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that Yah, God, may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God is to us a God of salvation, and to Yahweh, the Lord belongs, escapes from death. Surely God will crush the head of his enemies, the hairy skull of him who goes on, goes on in his guilty deeds. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that your foot may crush them in blood, the tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies." They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God in the congregations, Yahweh, the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin, the youngest, having dominion over them, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God, who has worked on our behalf. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Rebuke the beast in the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has cast out the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will, click, will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times. Behold, he gives forth his voice, a voice that is strong. Ascribe strength to God, his majesty is over Israel, and his strength is in the skies. O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and might to the people. Blessed be God.
This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me once more. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is revealed within it. And thank you for Christ, who is the incarnation of it, O Lord. Help us, O God, in this time to understand it, to desire it, to seek it, to pursue it at all costs, O God, and for it to change us, Lord, more and more into your image. It's your holy name. I ask and pray all of these things. Amen. Tonight we will continue in our Summer of the Psalms, and we're in Psalm 68, but before we launch into this, um, this is an account of a specific day, of a glorious event in the history of Israel, and so before we start to unpack it, unravel it, I'd like to point us to the context of it, um, so we can kind of understand what's happening on this glorious day. So if you would please turn with me to 2 Samuel 6. Psalms are meant to be sung, and um, they have different meanings and purposes, but this psalm, like I said, is recounting a historical event in the life of Israel. And as we'll see here in 2 Samuel 6, I want to start in verse 12. It says, It was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obedidim, and all that belongs to him, because the ark of God, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David is wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And so this psalm is recounting this event in this day that David and the house of Israel is bringing the Ark of Covenant back to Mount Zion. And so that is what we'll see and what we'll continue to unpack in these verses. Uh, so it starts out, so we're, we're coming to a conclusion of our Psalm of the Psalms very soon. But how we initially started it was going through Psalm 1 and 2. And the purpose of this is because Psalm 1 and 2 gives us a really good framework as to not only all of Scripture, but even more specifically the Psalm. And that there are the righteous who are blessed by God, who God finds favor with. But then there are the wicked who are at, at odds with God, who stand opposed to God. And you will see throughout this entire psalm, there are multiple accounts of this motif, of this thing being picked up and used. Uh, nonetheless, starting right here in our first verse. And so jumping right in, uh, it says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you, shall, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. This language in this first verse is actually um, quoted in the history of Israel by Moses. Um, so the Ark of Covenant is not anything new to the Davidic line or to this modern-day Israel, the time period that we are reading in. But rather, it is uh, in, created, it is brought about when uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and the Ten Commandments are revealed to him, and he comes down, and they create this chest, this, this box that they build out of wood, and they layer it with gold, and this is the Ark of the Covenant, and this is where God is delighting to ple is pleased to 
reveal his presence, to rest upon it, and to be with his people as they move through their journeys into the promised land, into where we are now. And so this language, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him, is actually a prayer of Moses. Moses would have prayed this every time that they would have moved the ark, that Moses would pray and intercede on behalf of the people for God to move, for the God to go before them, for God to lead them, and for the enemies to be scattered. And so David, now the psalmist here picking up on this language, is not praying it as much as he is in recognition of the prayer fulfilled, of the prayer being answered, that God has truly heard the prayers of Moses through the ark and has brought them into deliverance, into now where we are, of this great celebration of David and Israel, of this glorious day, of this like parade, if you want to think. They, one verse says it's like a train, but I think of like a parade. It's a parade of being entrance of the Ark Covenant, parading it into the city of David, into Zion. Um, and so it's, we see that as God shows up, two things happen. One is that, the, the first one, is that the enemies are scattered. Those who hate him shall flee before him. And it's important for us to realize that it's not that when we experience persecution, when we receive backlash for our faith, for the truth that we hold to and we proclaim, it's not people hating us. It's people hating God's truth. And we see this in the forefront of just all of culture and all that's happening around us. People are in rebellion to what God has stated to be true. And you even think about this at, um, I think about like family Thanksgivings or stuff like that. When you start to talk about your faith, you start to talk about your religion, people who are uncomfortable with it, people who want nothing to do with it, they go to the other room or they try to change the conversation. It's not an insult unto you, but it's rather that there is two categories of people. There are those who are the righteous, those who God delights in, that God blesses, and then there are the enemies of God, those who are scattered, those who flee from God. There's no such thing as this neutrality that exists. And so uh, it says that the enemies shall be scattered, those who hate him shall flee before him. But then we also see that as smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away, as wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. A couple weeks ago, when I was originally supposed to preach, it was last week, but a couple weeks ago we had um, a major storm that came through. And in the storm, it knocked out some power lines and some trees fell and people were without electricity for a couple days, I'm sure you recall. Um, I don't remember the exact date, but it was a Thursday and I was very fortunate to be working and making our cuts um, outside. So I was outside a bunch. That day was also a day when there was great smoke from the forest fires in Canada. There was this, the heaviness of smog in the air where actually like, two of my coworkers got sick because how heavy it was. But upon going out, I was going out every one minute to make a cut. Uh, I was able to watch the storm blow in. And the storm, in a matter of 20 minutes, the, the, the sky went from being completely dark and smoggy and smoky to clear and bright and sunny upon then the storm rolling in. So the wind that came before the storm blew out the smoke without any ease in a matter of no time at all. Likewise, the enemies of God stand no chance against him. When God desires to work and to move and to bring his sovereign hand against them, they cannot stand, and they will too pass away, as it says, as smoke is driven away, as wax melts. The enemies of God are little to no exist, uh, resistance or power at all. It's, Martin Luther says, I believe, that Satan is God's Satan. Even he can't do anything, as we see in Job, without the permission and the power of God, first and foremost, to work and to move. And so the enemies of God are completely powerless, and this stands in contrast to 
the righteous, as we see in verse 3. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Um, again, this is uh, opposite, as we see consistent with Psalm 1 and 2. And we need to make sure we don't have this um, misconception that it's not that Christians have a joy that's here and then unbelievers have a joy that's down here. We do live in a, uh, a world and we live in a nation that God's common grace is very much extended where people can experience the joy of, of law and order, of justice, the blessings of prosperity and of success. And there's much that we have to thank God for. And thus, the unbeliever can have a level of joy. But in no way, shape, or form is the joy come and rival the joy that we have in the Lord. And this is just so clear. The, the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall, they shall be jubilant with the joy. And so as much as we love our friends who are unbelievers, as much as we think that their life is okay and it's going well and might seem to be on the surface, there is nothing that compares to the joy that is found in Christ. And we should always be willing to preach that gospel, to just even assume that without Christ, they are missing out on something. In no way do we want to belittle the joy we have in Christ by saying, oh, the joy that they are experiencing through the gifts and the good things of the world are on the same level or come close to that that is found in Christ. And so we see that this joy, it overflows. It overflows out of the righteous into verse 4, into praise, into song. It says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. There is great um, power in music. Um, that's why most of us enjoy going to a concert. There's one thing about listening to a song over the radio. There's another thing about being at a concert, hearing the music live, being in a community with people who are also taking in the music and enjoying it. A song can change our mood in any given moment. It can make, a song can make us angry and mad. A song can make us joyful and happy. A song can make us sad. It, it can change our mood in an instance. And likewise, music is a gift from the Lord that we should joyfully and willfully, willingly give back to Him. Um, so when we gather and we have opportunities to sing to the Lord, I hope it, is, it will be the joy of our heart that what is within us that will overflow that to love, to delight, and to sing praises and song as unto the Lord. Um, because this is what this, the joy that is expressed here in the righteous, in the ones who are blessed by the Lord, it overflows into song and into praise. And so I hope that would be the outcome of our lives and our desire when we gather, whether it be on a Sunday or at other times in community, that just the joy of the Lord overflows into song, into praise that is holy and desiring and pleasing to Him. And so it overflows into song and praise, and it overflows to the Lord. It says, lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. This, uh, the, the word here is Yah, Y-A-H, and, and the legacy, standard Jared just read, we, we saw that, and we get translated as Lord. And the connotation that is being communicated here is that God is a conqueror. That, that the one who rides through the deserts is the leader of Israel who goes before them and conquers the enemies of God. And so this is kind of the theme and is also the title of the sermon that conquer. That, that, that God 
is a conqueror, and he goes forth and he conquers all who stands in his way and opposed to him. And we'll see this consistently throughout. We have a lot of verses to go through. That this picks up again and again um, in this chapter, in this psalm. So God is the conqueror. God is, and to be a conqueror, you don't, you don't get that title if you conquer nothing. Um, it, by you receiving that title is evidence and proof that you are that. And so God is this, and to be a conqueror is to assume that you are powerful, that you are mighty, that you are able to oppose people and to squash those who stand, stand against you. And so us knowing the nature of our God, knowing how great and powerful he is, the creator of all things, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, we know that he is truly magnificent. He's awesome. He's powerful. But then we get insight. We get this sharp contrast and change into verse 5 of and see the heart of the God that we serve and we worship. As it says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. So a consistent theme throughout all of Scripture is that God has a special bent, a special love, favor, look that he looks upon to those who are helpless, to those who are poor, to those who are most likely to be taken advantage of. And now us as humans, our temptation is not that. Our temptation is to deal with people who we get a high ROI on, people who could give something back in return. We want to be associated with the, the cool kids, the popular crowd. We want to be associated with the powerful and the strong. And so it's hard, it's not in our nature to uh, care, to show kindness or to have a particularly mercy or care for people who are weak, people who society looks down upon for one reason or another. But here we see that God, Jah, the, the conqueror, is also the father of the fatherless. He is the protector of widows. We see how God loves and is so gentle and caring to associate himself with the lowly. And this is the, this is the heart of the God that we worship. As powerful and great and magnificent as he is, desires to be known as one who watches over the poor, who cares for the fatherless, who is over the orphan and the widow. And it's worth asking the question, we as his followers, we who claim to be Christians, who follow him, are ones being changed and transformed into his image, into his heart posture. That is our prayer, is that Lord, we would become, his will would become our will. His kingdom would become the kingdom that we pursue. And so it's worth um, wrestling with and asking, how do you, does this play out in your life? Um, we as a church don't just do Hands of Hope or Care Communities because it's, it feels nice to help someone out. But rather we do it because we see so clearly in Scripture that God cares for these people and commands his people to as well. And so I... I no matter where you're at and what you've wrestled through, it's worth considering adoption, foster care, helping the widow. And, any, and all of us have different avenues, different lanes, different lives that we're living, different workplaces. We're all in different neighborhoods. And it's what are the needs in your neighborhood and how can you reflect the nature, the character, the heart of our God to the people that he has put you in proximity with. And let, uh, let it be our desire to continue to grow and to move into reflecting greater the God that we worship and we serve. And so 
So it's not just the orphan or the widow, um, but it's also, it says that God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Um, this language of verse 6, that God's settling the solitary in a home, it has to do with people who have no friends or who have no family, who are lonely, who are isolated. However, many commentators would also say that it has to do with um, women who are barren, women who can't have children, or women who suffer miscarriages. And now, um, we are a very young church, and um, assuming that we will be fruitful and multiply, and many of us will hopefully uh, start having families sooner and later, um, something I want to get in is that miscarriages are far too common than we realize. And um, I, I imagine most of us have walked through people who have suffered miscarriages, if not multiple of them. And they are devastating. Um, it, it is heartbreaking to, to walk with people who you love and care about who, who suffer that. But we have this, this hope. We have this promise that God is a God who sees them. God is a God who cares for them. God is a God who knows them and is there for them. And so thus, we don't offer um, wisdom or help that is hopeless, that is fruitless, that is empty, but rather we can actually offer a, a comfort that is unlike anything else this world has to offer. And so God forbid that day happens, um, but nonetheless we have just the character and the love and nature of our God to fall back upon, to rely upon, to trust in, to rest in, um, and through that suffering if it was to ever come to our doorstep. And he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Um, this has to do with those who suffer injustice, those who are wrongly persecuted, thrown in prison by a wicked government or structure, even then, God watches over them. And it says that, um, back to verse 5, says, it's God in his holy habitation. And what is being communicated here, that God in heaven sees the sufferer, sees the lowly, sees those who find themselves in these situations. And it's contrasted with the end of verse 6, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And what is being communicated here is better to be an orphan, is better to be a widow, is better to be barren or suffer wrongly in prison and be known by God and it's for it to be seen by him in his holy habitation and for him to have hope in him and what he can do in and through your suffering in and through your life than it is to be the rebellious, to be the wicked who dwell in a parched land that nothing satisfies, nothing can give the purpose, nothing can bring contentment. It's better to be in those situations and know God than it is to have a life of prosperity apart from God. But nonetheless, the emphasis is that the God of heaven sees the lowly and the poor and all their suffering, all their brokenness, and has a tender love and care extended towards them. So this Psalm 1 and 2 context um, as I say, continues in, in the verses that we just read. Um, but on this day of celebration, like I said this is a very specific event in the life of Israel. We are now moving to um, David charging the congregation, charging the nation of Israel to look back on the past, to see the events that have led them up to where they are now. And so that'll be verses from like 7 to 18. We'll look at the uh, wilderness, and then we'll look at the conquest of the land, and then we'll look at the triumph to Zion. So starting in verse 7, read verses 7 to 10, it says, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earthquake, 
the heavens pour down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it, and your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. And so this theme, like I said, of God being conqueror, of God being leader, will continue throughout this entire passage. And we see here in verse 7, it says, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness. Um, wow, lost my train of thought. Selah, that's, there it is. Selah um, is a word that we find in Psalms, and we find a couple other places in Scripture. And there's debate as to what it means, but it's, it's a pause. And it's like, well, is it a musical pause, or is it a pause for meditation? Uh, that, that's kind of discussion. But nonetheless, it is a change in the pace of what is taking place in, in the psalm, in, in this uh, procession, in this, yeah, in this singing. Um, but it's also worth for us to pause and to contemplate the leading of the Lord in our own lives. Um, I imagine most of us who are here in Indianapolis would not ever imagine all the things that we are taking, taking in, all the things we are partaking of, all the things we are experiencing, we knew would happen when we moved to Indianapolis. Whether it's we lived here our entire lives, or we came here for schooling, or we came here for a job, we can look and reflect and see God's gracious and kind leading in our lives to bring us to where we are here today. So whether it's us moving here to Indianapolis, if that the job you're currently working in, the living situation you find yourself in, the community you belong in, all of us can reflect and never have known all the things that we are partaking of, all the things we are experiencing, is because of what God has done and how God has led us here. And even think about the past week. Think about even today of the, the provisions of the Lord, of His guiding, of His leading as a good shepherd to bring us to partake in all things that we love, all things that we enjoy, all things that we know today have not been of our own doing, have not been of our own decision-making or us leading ourselves, but rather it has been because the Lord our God has led us. And that is worthy of meditating on, that's worthy of reflecting on, that's worthy of contemplating, and thus then giving great thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. And so the faithfulness of the Lord um, just continues to abound. But then you think about it, where did God lead them? He brought his people, the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. He brings them through to deliverance. And we see that um, in these verses. And we hear some language of the Exodus account. Um, Alexander labored with Psalm 78 in the past two weeks about this as well. But just how you read Exodus and you see time and time again, God moves heaven and earth for his people. He bends nature for His purposes to offer provision, to offer protection, to offer everything that His people need to give them deliverance from Egypt through the desert to the promised land. And so our God is one who leads, and He leads greatly, He leads powerfully, and He does all this, again, on display to show that there's nothing He won't do for His people. That heaven and earth are in um, our uh, yeah, quake the heavens, pour down rain. All of them are witnesses. All of them stand to 
see as, no, I was thinking another word, witnesses to what God has done and what God is doing for his people to deliver them, to bring them out of the wilderness. Um, and so we move from Exodus, the, the earthquake, the heavens pour down. Um, we see that water comes from rocks. We see that manna flows from heaven. We see the sea that is open wide for the people to cross through. Um, rain abundance, you shed abroad, you restored your inheritance as it languished, as people died, as people were lost. Nonetheless, the people persisted, the remnant did make it to the promised land, um, as he found his flock dwelling in it, and it is in the goodness of our God that he provided for the needy. Um, one commentator says, the greater the wilderness God's people are in, the more supernatural the Lord's provisions will come. And so thus, God delights even now to deliver us out of all of our sin, out of all that we experience, so that then his glory may be manifested, so that his name would be praised. Um, so that he can receive the credit and all of the glory. And so we move from Exodus, the Exodus account, to now the conquest into verse 11. It says, The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold, when the Almighty scatters kings, scatters kings there, lets no fall on Zalman. Again, the first thing we see that the Lord gives the word. Victory is not accomplished upon when man decides or when man enacts it. Victory, uh, the conquest of the promised land, is when God goes before his people and he gives the word and the towers fall, the, the walls come crumbling down, the enemy goes fleeing and running. Victory belongs to the Lord and is upon when he states it and when he enacts it. When it says the women who announce the news are a great host, we see this in Scripture with uh, Moses' sister Miriam. We see this when David slays Goliath, that the women would go forth and proclaim to all the people of the success that has just been had, the victory that has just been at hand. And so likewise now, as God goes through his, with his people in the conquest of the promised land. The women proclaim of the victory of the Lord and how they squash the enemy. The enemies are fleeing. They are scattered. They are driven away before the Lord God Almighty. And thus, as language quoted here from Joshua, the kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. You can read the account of Joshua and how no one stood against the Lord God Almighty and his people as they entered, as they conquered in the conquest of the promised land. Um, but then it says, the women at home divide the spoil. So, as I imagine all war has been for all of human history, the men would go off onto war, and then whatever spoil they would get from the victory, they themselves would take and keep for themselves. The women didn't necessarily have a division of the spoil. But to emphasize how great the Lord's victory is, it says that the women at home divide the spoil. There's an abundance of victory, abundance of success, abundance of rewards, of gifts, of treasures that is taken from their promised land because of how dominant God is in and through his people. And then it says, though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of dove covered with silver, its pinion with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, lest no fall on Zaman. This again, we find the, um, 
righteous and wicked contrast. The righteous are those who experience the wings of doves covered with uh, silver. The dove is a picture of peace. That's a symbol that we find throughout all of Scripture. And so thus, for those who are righteous, those who are with the Lord, those who have God with them, they experience the peace like a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. And there's, there's a brightness, there's a, there's a light that's associated with this. As gold shines by the sun. So then the righteous are receive the favor of the Lord resting upon them, God's face turning towards them. And this stands in contrast with verse 14. When the Almighty scatters the kings there, let snow fall on Zaman. Zaman was a dark mountain, always with snow, full of storms. And so for the righteous, there's, there's a warmth, there's a peace, there's a rest. For the unrighteous, for the wicked, there is, it's a winter storm. It's always dark, it's cold, it's bris. And so again, we see the contrast of God being for His people in the conquest and the, His favor resting upon them and the joy and the blessings and the benefit of that and the enemies and what they suffer and what they experience as snow falls on Zaman. And so we move from the Exodus account of the deliverance out of the wilderness to the conquest, to the taking of the land, and now to the triumph and to kind of where we are uh, in the count of Psalm 68 now. In verse 15, it says, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many peak mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many peak mountain? At the mount that God desired for his bode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousand upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Um, Bashan, the Bashan Mountains are in the northern part of Israel, for those of us who have been there. And it's considered the modern day Golden Heights. Um, it, it, some people might know what that is. But nonetheless, they're, they're impressive mountains. They are very tall. Um, they, are, they loom over the entire nation, over all the land of Israel. And they can be seen from a distance. And they're very impressive. So much so that they are called here, O mountain of God. They call these, not in the sense that they are God or God delights in them, but in the sense that they are so impressive as they refer, in contrast to all the other landscape that they are God amongst everything else in the landscape, of, in the land. And so... This, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many peak mountains, it says, why do you look with hatred? And so this mountain is being personified, and uh, the translation that Jared read was, why do you look with envy? And so these impressive mountains look upon with envy and with hatred upon the mount that God chooses. And that, we know, is Mount Zion. It says, at the, at the mount that God desired for his bode, Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. Again, for those of you who have been to Israel, Zion is nothing impressive. Zion is it's like a rolling hill. It's like a foothill. In contrast to the mountains of Bashan that are tall and, and snow-capped and impressive. Mount Zion's not even, like, there's a taller hill. The, the Mount of Olives right beside it is actually bigger than the Mount of Zion. There, there's nothing impressive about it. There's no... In, in, in contrast to the Mount of Bashan. And so, but here we are, we receive the um, declaration that this is the mount that God has desired for his abode, where God will dwell forever. And this is doing one of two things. Um, the first one is that it is solidifying, it is um, approving, it, it is 
supporting, there it is, supporting uh, the kingship of David. That Mount Zion's where David and his kingdom would, would rest, would be, would sit, and would go forth. And this is um, relatively after Saul and David now to the throne. And so this is just God expressing his delight, his approval that David is the king that he desires to sit upon it. And so it's the support of the Davidic line of King David on Mount Zion, but also is uh, playing into a consistent theme that we see throughout Scripture, that as men, are, uh, as, as humans, our um, temptation is to use the mighty, the powerful, the wise, the successful to be associated with, to be in community with, to build with. But for God, He desires to use the weak and the foolish to actually shame the, the strong and the wise. And likewise, this is being personified here through these mountains, that God does not choose the greatest mountain in all of Israel to rest His abode upon, but He chooses actually the lowly foothills of Mount Zion to dwell in. And likewise for us, if we need any more examples of this, look, look at us. Hot, I, I forget your language. Hodgepodge, what did you say? What did you say? Hodgepodge. Yeah, the hodgepodge of people. Look at us. The weak and the foolish. Amen. Um, so anyways, this consistent theme that God does not use the strong and the wise, but the weak and the foolish to shame them. And likewise, we see this here in how God chooses Mount Zion to be his place. In support of that, we have verse 17. It says, The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousand upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. This has to do in reference to angels and the thousands upon thousands um, is like an infinite loop. And what is trying to communicate is that the heavenly host, the power that God has. We see this that Jesus says that he called down an army of angels and we see the work of angels throughout all of scripture. And it shows that God in and of himself, absolutely fullness of power, but also he has an entire army of angels who are powerful and at his will do his bidding. And so he puts his chips all in, if you will, to show that the uh, Mount Zion has this support. It has this power. It has this heavenly host behind it and for it and fighting for it. And likewise, when it says um, Sinai is now in the sanctuary, we think about the Exodus account when the people of Israel want to come and speak to God. And so they come to Sinai. And God strikes the, the mountain down with such great lightning that it, the entire earth trembles and the mountain is scarred and burned forever. And that the people say, oh no, we, actually Moses, you go and talk to God. We never want to experience this again. And so that event of Sinai and the power of God being so manifested through his might and through thunder and lightning is then also what is being incorporated in that this is what is also behind. This is also what is in support of Mount Zion. Thus, God's chosen place. Um, and so Zion is on high, is a foothill. And so we continue um, in verse 18. It says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. And so we, we can use our imaginations and we can picture the ark ascending on high up to the top of um, Mount Zion. This would be before the temple was built. The temple's built with Solomon. We are under the kingship of David. So the tabernacle would, was probably in place and would be at the top of Mount Zion. 
And so the ascension of the Ark of the Covenant going up to the tabernacle. And it says, leading a host of captives in your train. Again, train, parade. Yeah, I think you get it. Um, probably no candy. But, the, but it does have a host of captives in that the kings, the enemies of God who they, have who they have defeated in the promised land, they are now brought behind the Ark of Covenant as like trophies, as on display for these wicked and rebellious rulers to be shamed, to be mocked, to be put on full display for how weak and incompetent they were, but also their complete and utter foolishness for standing against God and His people and His chosen ones. So we have the host of captives in the train, and it says, in receiving gifts among men. Um, the victorious king, um, upon success, upon victory, would then distribute the earnings, the uh, gifts, the spoil, the, the winnings to his people, to those who were fought for him, to those who were with them, to those who are associated with them. And so we see that happening, that they're receiving gifts among men. And it says, even among the rebellious, that the Lord may, God may dwell there. And it's this recognition that even the rebellious, even the wicked must recognize that God is the ruler, that God is the king, and that he, Lord God, may dwell there on Mount Zion. This is his climactic um, coming into his residing place. And we see this in scripture, and um, that God has, a, has chosen Mount Zion to be his place. And so thus this is a, a big event that the Israelites would have known this and um, longed for this and looked forward to uh, this glorious day. Um, and so with reflection of the wilderness, reflection on the conquest, a reflection of this triumph up to Mount Zion, the psalmist now leads us to um, continual praise, to continue overflowing. Uh, says that, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is God's salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverance from death. Um, it should be our practice as well when we reflect on our own lives and we consider and we see all that God has done for us that we can likewise agree with the psalmist and thus even continue to pray the psalmist that the Lord is fully worthy and deserving of our blessing. And thus, blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And then again, Selah. For us to meditate how truly weak and needy and helpless we are. That just as in the wilderness and the conquest, if there was ever a moment that God, for any reason, took his favor upon them or did not bless them in their pursuit, there was immediate collateral. There was immediate damage done. They, they, they lost the war. They had no food to eat. They, they suffered greatly because of their disobedience, because of God's lack of blessing and hand upon them. And likewise for us, when it says that who daily bears us up, this is something that we can um, very easily lose sight of and forget the power of. When Christ offers us daily bread, when he offers us mercies that are new every morning, when the promises of God become so watered down that we just forget about them or just brush over them, um, it is worth the say law to, to pause and to meditate. It is God who daily bears us up. 
we can never know the truest extent of how dependent we are upon God and how great we are in need of Him. And thus, also, God is our salvation. There's nothing we can do to attribute righteousness, nothing we do to add to it, to earn it, to gain it. It is all upon the Lord. God gives salvation fully, completely, and utterly. But then it says, verse 20, Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverance from death. This um, language of, of God, of our salvation here in verse 20, uh, it, sorry, couldn't find it. God, God is saving acts. So it's not, God doesn't just save us from hell. God doesn't just save us for heaven. God saves us, in, in, not in like an eternal sense, but in, in a way that he saves us daily from our sins. He saves us daily from persecution, from the enemies of God. He saves us daily from the, the, uh, the sinful world that we live in. So it's not just that God saves us and now oh, everything's upon us to do right and to live in obedience. No, God continues to extend His grace and to provide these saving acts that save us from all the things that we can encounter and experience in this world when he so desires, when he so delights. Yeah, when we just become so easily forgetful of these. This is um, Israel reflecting on Egypt to Zion and seeing how their helplessness, their neediness upon God, and how great his faithfulness is, how true he is to the salvation that he offers and all the saving acts that he gives. But then, oh, belong deliverance from death, even death itself. Um, I, I often think we as Christians have such a low theology of death um, that we live so much like the rest of the world that is so afraid of death and do all they can to escape it. When Christ saving us from death frees us to no longer fear it and to live in a way that is actually bold and courageous. Now, I, you shouldn't have a death wish. You shouldn't just go bear hunting by yourself in Montana. That'd be foolish. But, but there, is, there is some freedom of that death, no matter when it comes, knocking on your doorstep, whether that's tonight or that's in 10 years or that's the end of your life, it is not in any way, shape, or form taking glory from the Lord, nor is it robbing Him of His plans for your life. Death is something that we have been saved from, something we have delivered from, and so thus it's something that we no longer must fear. And this stands in contrast, again, Psalm 1-2, to verse 21, when it says, But God will strike the heads of His enemies, the hairy crown of Him who walks in His guilty way. There is not only real death, for those who oppose God, but there is destruction, there is damnation, there is, here I am, a hellfire preacher, wow. <laughs> there, there is hellfire. Um, and so this hairy crown that is used in this, in this passage, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways, is uh, like metaphor for a youthful vigor, a, a pride. And also we see that the to and fro, there is no, repent, no repentance. They walk around in their guilty ways. Um, and this is a terrible state of human existence. Uh, for humans to be so unashamed of their sin that they boldly and proudly wear it and live it and walk around with it. And sin 
just as God is a consuming fire that consumes people to holiness, sin is also a consuming fire. It is like a lion at the doorstep, ready to crouch, ready to leap, ready to devour you. Just as God draws His people into greater and deeper holiness and out of sin, sin pulls people deeper and greater into sin. And sin continues to produce more sin. And so for anyone to be walking around in a way that is the hairy crown and is guilty ways, it is a miserable and terrible state of existence. And one that will not be escaped from. It says in verse 22, The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, and I will bring them from the bring them back from the depths of sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portions from the foe. And so this, again, we see this language of Bashan. We know this is the mountains. So there is a, a height that is being communicated. And with the sea, it says the depths of the sea. And so what has been communicated here is that for the wicked, it doesn't matter where they go. They, there's nowhere they can go to flee the judgment that is coming for them. The heights of Bashan or depths of sea, there's no place to escape. And verse 23 is highlighting the, the gruesomeness of the judgment that has to come. The fact that you would walk and your feet would hit their blood because it is poured out. That the tongues of dogs may have their portion, would have plenty to feast upon because of God's hatred towards sin and how he will destroy it. And so there's nowhere to hide, but once again, we are reminded that victory is the Lord's, that God conquers, and anyone and everyone who stands opposed to him will not be able to stand in the day of judgment. There is no way to escape God. There's no righteousness that you could produce. There's no um, favor you can gain or earn. There's no way for you to play your cards right or to bet. Um, All those who stand apart from Christ will experience this judgment and thus this yeah this judgment um and so it continues the law of the wicked and then oh you can't encounter the living god and live everyone who encounters him dies for us who have encountered him through the precious blood of jesus christ we have been born again We have died to self, and we have been arisen and crucified in Christ to life everlasting, to life to the fullest, to abundant life because of Christ. So we ourselves have encountered the living God and have died, but we have died to ourselves. Where for the wicked, for the unrighteous, this will not be so. They they will die, but it will not be a blissful, peaceful death like we have experienced under the yoke and burden of Christ. But rather, it will be one of great suffering. And so, <laughs> bad transition. The psalmist moves back to the day at hand, the joyous day of celebration of, of Psalm 68 and the parade and the train that is happening. When he says, your, your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, virgins playing tr- tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in the throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Um, and so we can use our imagination. We can kind of see this picture of how it is taking place, of the different tribes in the, in the line, the tambourine, the music. 
Um, there's a couple things to highlight. The first one is the humility of David. In verse 24, David says, my king. And so David, being the highest man on the totem pole, being the leader of the nation of Israel, and having an opportunity to receive credit, to receive glory, rightfully um, shows us that he truly is a man after God's own heart. And that he humbles himself and recognizes that, no, Christ is the king. That God is his king and calls him my king. Um, we also see that there is glory in numbers. Uh, verse 27 is highlighting this. It mentions a couple of tribes. So What's essentially communicating, it's, it's the entirety of the tribes. It's the tribes from the northernmost region and the tribes of the southernmost region who are all gathered here in mass, in numbers, for this day of celebration. And to think, that, that means they have traveled very, very far. It's not, it's not days, it's, it's weeks for them to get to Jerusalem, to get to the Mount of Zion, and to experience and to celebrate with the entire congregation of this glorious day, of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, riding in and, and coming. And so it's revealing the totality. But then also we see here in verse 26, uh, the call to worship. It says, Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. It's important when we gather, like I said there's glory in numbers, there's power in numbers, but that we have a call to worship, that we have something that motivates us, that moves us to worship the Lord. Uh, whether it be a, so this motivation, this enthusiasm, and we have that in verse um, 26. And so likewise, that is why we also, when we start our services, do a call to worship, is that we want to move people. We want to help people to arise for your spirits to be uplifted, and that we are now coming here today to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we see a, a practical use of the call to worship, and hopefully you see why it's so important why um, we do it. And so let's let us stir and encourage one another um, to sing boldly, to sing loudly, to sing joyfully unto the Lord and worship and loudly. Not well, just loudly. That's all that matters. Um, and so David uh, moves from this, the, the day at hand to now a, a prayer of almost expectancy, of anticipation. Uh, verse 28 says, Summon your power, O God, the power of God by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall build, bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. Noble shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch her hands to God. Um, there is a humility, once again, from David here, of weakness. He recognizes when he says, Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. The humility is of, is of helplessness, of a weakness, is the recognition that all power has come from the Lord. And that's quite profound coming from a king, coming from a ruler of the nation. You, you put that in contrast to most of our, not just our politicians, most politicians today. And who do they ascribe power to? Who do they give credit to? Who do they uh, bring praise to? It's, it's themselves. They say, look what I have done. Look what I have accomplished. Look what I have bargained for. Look what I have done. And so we see that David, once again, is giving all power, all glory unto the Lord, shutting it anything from him. 
But also what he's doing is he's asking more of this. He's asking more of the power of God to come and to be manifested and to be summoned. And likewise, this is what we do as well. When we pray for our own holiness and we say, conform us to the image of you, God, and we desire for us to become lesser so that God become greater, we are asking for more of the power of God to reside within us, to change us, to conform us. When we ask for the Spirit and we, we pursue the fruits of the Spirit and we desire the fruits of the Spirit, that is the power of God at work and enacting and uh, manifesting in our lives. And same thing with salvation, um, that being the chief of them all. That salvation is the power of God, and that's the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's through the gospel that then we, we pray. We pray for our, our own lives, we pray for our family members, we pray for our loved ones, for people who don't know the Lord. We are praying for the power of God to come upon them, to change their heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and to move them into repentance, into abiding with the Lord. Um, and so, some of your power, bring because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Uh, again, this is a little confusing because the temple hasn't been built yet. It's not King Solomon. Um, so it's, it's referring to the tabernacle. It's referring to where the Ark of the Covenant is moving to. Um, yeah, king shall bear gift to you. And, uh, oh, so why, um, why pray this? Why need more power from God? Isn't like the Ark Covenant's coming to its resting place? The, uh, David has extended his kingdom to the greatest extent upon which Israel has ever seen. Why is there to keep praying for um, more power from the Lord? And we see that in verse 30 when it says, Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. And so we see that the enemies of God um, continue to exist for David and for the nation of Israel. The, um, the beasts that dwell among the reeds, this is in reference to a crocodile or to a hippo one or the other, and that then, I, probably for most of us, would draw us to think of Egypt. And so this is a reference to Egypt, where the reeds, the Nile River, the crocodiles, the hippos that uh, persist in, in it. And so reference Egypt, which would be the greatest um, enemy to David at this time and to the nation of Israel that continues to exist. Uh, but then also it refers to the herd of bulls, talking about the other kings and wicked rulers that still exist around Israel, and with the calves of the people, that being the people of these nations that continue to exist. And so he says, trample underfoot those who lust after tribute, scatter the peoples who delight in war. And once again, we see that David is calling forth God, who has revealed himself as conqueror, to not only, we have reflected on how God has already conquered all the enemies of Israel and of his people, and now is, that's continue to, is asking God to continue to go forth to conquer all those who stand opposed, these, these uh, wicked nations. And so just as the psalm looked back, we are now looking forward in this um, prayer that we just prayed, but also into uh, 32 through 35, as it says, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, Selah, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. 
Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. And so again, this passage, um, specifically verse 32, is looking forward. When it says, when David said, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, that's not a command for them to do against their will, but rather is looking forward to when all nations, from people from every tribe and every tongue, will joyfully and willingly sing praises unto God. And so just as David praised us in anticipation of looking forward, we also, say law, should stop and meditate and consider that there will be one day when people from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe that has ever existed will sing praises to the Lord. And so the Great Commission that we read at the end of every service is essentially what is David is praying here to. For, O kingdoms that are singing to God, sing praises to the Lord. Just as what David looked forward to one day, we ourselves are also looking forward to one day, to the fulfillment of it. When the glory of God and the knowledge of God will stretch across the earth as the, sea, as the water does in the sea. Um, so yeah, not a force command, but a willingly one um, that they want to sing. This is prophetic, and there will come a day. And then verse 33, we continue. Uh, we have the same language that we found in verse 4, when it says, To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, that God is this conqueror, that he rides from the heavens to the earth, that he goes before his people, that he leads them into prosperity, into victory, but also he over his enemies to all those who stand against him. And so the mighty voice is, again, in reflection to Mount Sinai when God thunderously spoke uh, down in fear and trembling, the power of God on display for all of his people. And it continues, it says, Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Um, God, so when it says, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, God shows time and time again throughout this entire, all scripture, as well as all that we have um, accounted, that his power is with his people. When it says majesty is over Israel, it's not that God's power is disconnected from his people, but rather he delights to manifest it. He delights to show it. He delights to bring it into the presence of his people and to work and to move in and through it. So that's, it's a scribe. Again, this power belongs to God, not to his people, not to anything they have done, but to God and to God alone. It says, in whose power is in the skies, and this is language to be all-consuming, that his power is everywhere. We, we sing the song, where can we go from your spirit? Where can we run from your presence? There's no place that we can go that the presence and the power of God cannot also go with us. And then the verse 35, awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. And so again, from his sanctuary, this is in the Ark of the Covenant, God has desire to reveal his presence in a physical, tangible way in the midst of his people, and is now to rest in the sanctuary. And so the psalmist goes to great lengths to associate the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, with God's power dwelling and resting upon it. 
And thus, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Thus, all power flowing from the ark, flowing from the sanctuary, flows in and through for his people ever before us. Um, One commentator said this way, he says, Is the power of God that enabled Israel to leave Egypt, survive the wilderness, conquer kings, and occupy the land. Whatever the people of God need, he will provide. Wherever they go, he will protect. For this and much more, he is to be blessed. So, universal truth. I'm running out of time. I'm really running out of time. Universal truth. What is true for Israel in Psalm 68 and all that we've read and all we've counted and all that I've talked about, that is also true for us today. What is extended? And there's been different things I've communicated. The ark uh, serves as a, as a type of Christ, as a typology. That just as the ark of the covenant, in the great celebration, was moved up to the Mount Zion, so Christ... The, the presence and power of God is moved to its final resting place. And so we, we have Christ going, and we have people shouting Hosanna, but that, that's not this. It's more the ascension of Christ. When Christ ascends from earth to his final resting place in the heavenly realm on his heavenly kingdom. And so this is a, a typology of that. And so to help us understand, Paul you, takes uh, Psalm 68, and he elaborates on it in in Ephesians 4. So uh, 68, 18 says, You ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And if you'll turn with me to Ephesians 4, we'll see how Paul understands this to be taken and to be used for the New Testament church. Um, for eight. So he says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions to earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. So we see that Paul takes what is being referred to as the Ark of Covenant in Psalm 68 and uses it for language for Christ and his ascension from earth into um, the heavenly realm. And so thus, this host of captives that it talks about, like I said, for Israel, it was the defeated kings. But for Christ, it is sin. It is death. It is Satan. These are the things that are in the victory parade of Christ as defeated behind him. And we know that Christ, um, Paul, Paul says that we should consider ourselves dead to sin. We say that death has lost its sting. We know that uh, he who is within us is greater than he who is in the world. All the enemies of the church have been defeated, if, if you will. And they are now, in, as a host of captives, 
in this victory train and parade of Christ in his ascension to his final resting place on his heavenly throne until he is to come again. And so Paul shows us why. Why is it that this happens? Why is this important? And it is to equip, uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ. Um, David, in Psalm 68, he labors to show us that the power of God is connected with the Ark of the Covenant, is connected with the sanctuary of God. But now, as New Testament saints, we know that the sanctuary does not exist. There's no such thing as a temple. But rather, the temple is in the hearts of all the believers. Christ's ascension, and you think about the language in John, Christ says, it's better for me to go for the helper to come. And what does the helper do? What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is the power of God that rests and resides in each and every one of us. The power of God from the sanctuary that led the people of God through all of Psalm 68 from deliverance from Egypt to Zion is now this very same God and thus the same power that we now call the sanctuary that is our hearts where God rests upon. So the power of God is within us, if you will. And, and, and for two, two reasons, um, two, two, two I read, to... Uh, Oh, I'm out of order. To quit the saints for ministry, building up the body of Christ. And so God is not done conquering. Again, all, all Psalm 68 made it explicitly clear. No person, not even David himself, can take credit for what God did for his people. And the truth is all the more same for us today. There's nothing in our lives that we can take credit for that God has done for us. It is all God. But nonetheless, it is God within us. God delights for his power to dwell within us in jars of clay and within us. And it's for him to continue conquering in, in two ways. First is an internal conquering. We are not perfect. And God will not stop until we are. The good work that he has started, he will see it through to completion. And when Christ returns and we are uh, met into the heavenly realm, we will be perfected, and upon which God will have no longer anything for us to conquer. Because our sin will be put to death. All the things, all impurities, all dross will be done with. And then for all of heaven, we will be perfected as Christ is, and more and more into his image. So there's an internal conquering that Christian, like, have hope that your, your sin, your struggle, your fear, your anxiety, whatever it is that you suffer with now, God does not plan on leaving you there. God plans on conquering your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and bringing it all to the glory of his name and to working it out all for, the, for his glory and to his end because he receives glory, not us. So there's an internal conquering, but then there's also an external conquering. Again, the, the prophetic, hopeful prayer of David when all the nations, all the kings would worship the God joyfully and willingly. And likewise, God has so many more people to save. The, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. There are so many people that God yet still desires and delights and hopes to bring within His fold to experience the fullness of Jesus Christ. And thus, He plans on conquering through us. We have been given the power of God and we've been entrusted with the good news of the gospel 
to now go forth and to speak and to share and proclaim. And how can they not believe they not hear? How can they hear if, if someone does not preach? How can someone preach and they are not sent? And beautiful are the feet who are sent. And so God, I need to calm down. All, everything in your life is not a coincidence. Every, the family you belong to, the friendships you have, the roommates you live with, the coworkers, the people you pass on the Monon Trail, none of it's a coincidence. God is working out all things for the good of those that he loves. And he is opening up door after door after door for us to be faithful and proclaiming the good news of the gospel and for uh, sinners to be saved. And thus it's not upon us because we do not have the power to change anyone. We only have the power to change ourselves. But God has the power to change us and to change others. And he has promised to do it through the gospel message being proclaimed off of our tongues. So thus, God is the mighty conqueror who will not only conquer us, but conquer all of his people. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you. What more can we say, O Lord? This grace, this mercy, this favor, this kindness that you have shown us, O Lord, we are so undeserving of God. There is nothing we have done to earn it, to favor it. But Lord, in your abundant grace, Lord, you have just been so delighted and pleased to pour it out upon us. And for that, we just thank you, Lord. I pray, Father, for the continuum of our worship service and to overflow of fellowship tonight, God. That gratitude would just overflow out of us, O oh God. And through all that we do, whether in, in heart or in speech or in mind, God, it would just be glorifying to you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, Lord. That Christ, you have ascended. You have overcome sin and death and the enemy. And thus, Lord, we can go forth proclaiming a victorious message knowing, Lord, that the gospel is the power of salvation unto sinners, O oh God. Help us to be unashamed of that, Lord, and echo the words of Paul. Um, Father, you say in your word, Romans 8, Lord, where are we? We are more than conquerors because of what Christ has done, because Christ in us, because of his love for us, O oh God. And so, Father, teach us what it looks like to reply, rely greater and deeper upon you. We just thank you, Lord. It's your holy name, ask and pray all these things. Amen.